Hey, seasoned athletes, I'm Robin Leggett, and this is episode 26 of the Seasoned Athlete Podcast. This is your home for inspiring stories and motivational advice from competitive athletes from a wide variety of sports who all share one common bond. They are all over 40 years old. We're here to prove one story at a time that age does not have to prevent you from achieving your bold athletic and fitness goals. To learn more about this podcast and see show notes from this or any episode, visit seasonedathlete.me. And if you like what you hear, I'd love it if you'd subscribe, share with your friends, and leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Audible, where you can get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash seasonedathlete. As we approach the end of the year, for many of us, travel is in the picture. And there's no better way to make the travel time pass quickly than by diving into a great audiobook. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player, including some authored by previous seasoned athlete guests like Katherine Switzer and Lee DiPietro. To get your free audiobook download and 30-day free trial, go to audibletrial.com slash seasonedathlete or visit seasonedathlete.me and click on Audible Trial on the main menu. Today, I have a very special episode for you. As we get ready to call it a day on 2017, we're going to take a look back at some of the best moments from the Seasoned Athlete podcast since we launched in June of this year. I've been going back and listening to all of my interviews with seasoned athletes from the year to pull some of the best stories, advice, and quotes for what I'm calling the Seasoned Athlete Best Moments of 2017 episode. To be honest, this was a tough episode to put together, mainly because I now have 24 amazing interviews to choose from, all with top-notch athletes with extraordinary stories. So the hardest part was just to narrow it down to a handful of clips to include. I definitely chose some great ones, but I don't want to take away from every single athlete's story that's been included on this show. So if you haven't done so yet, I highly recommend going back and listening to all of our episodes from the year. I guarantee you will be inspired. And with that being said, let's get to our first story of the episode. It comes from a triathlete by the name of Cherie Gruenfeld. In episode 10, which debuted on August 2nd, Cherie tells the story of her best race. I loved this story because she told it in a way that really puts us as listeners inside the story to experience the race as she experienced it. Let's listen to Cherie Gruenfeld's best race. People ask me frequently, how long are you going to do this? And um, I knew the answer. I've always known the answer. And the answer was when the training is no longer fun, that's when it's time to hang it up. And, you know, I train out here in the desert where during the summertime where uh, it probably averages about 110 or 112. It can be 115, 18. I've trained in 122 out here and I did it for, for 25 years. And So in 2014, I began to feel like I was not enjoying this anymore. I used to get jump out of bed and say, oh boy, it's going to be 115 today. This is great. I wasn't doing that anymore. (laughs) You're very strange, you know. (laughs) So uh, uh, in 2014, I really wasn't having a good time. But when I crossed the finish line in 2014, it never occurred to me that it had been onerous enough that I didn't want to do it again. So I started training in 2015. And I started noticing that it really, really wasn't, I I was not enjoying it. And maybe this was the time. But I knew that in order to walk away, because this this race had become a, a huge part of my life. And so I knew in order to happily give up that part of my life, I was going to have to have a race that I was so happy with that I felt like I was leaving on my own terms and I was happy to do it. 
I didn't know exactly what that meant. I figured it had to do something to do with winning, but it, it had to be more than that, I, I felt. So I trained my butt off in 2015. I was ready to go. I was hating every minute of it, to tell you the truth, but I was training hard. So I got there and there were, uh, I don't know, a dozen, maybe 15 women in the age group, but there were three that I figured would, would be on the podium, myself and two others. Um, one of them, I felt like I, I would tangle with her on the bike, but I could get her on the run. And so I wasn't too concerned about her. The other one was a woman, a delightful woman named Natalie, who had been racing for a lot of years. And in the last bunch of years, she'd placed second to me a number of times. And uh, I, I figured that usually I would pick her off on the run. She could get past me on the bike. I would get out of the water before she did. She'd catch me on the bike. And then um, I would catch her early on in the run. But I figured she was going to be the one I was going to have to to uh, worry about the most. So we went into the race. And as it turned out, I did get out of the water before she did. I heard them calling her out of the water as I was starting the bike. So I knew she was where she was behind me. Um, early on in the bike, like about mile 45, she passed me which was earlier than she normally did. So I knew that she was in real good shape and, and ready to go. And she had just turned 70. So uh, she, I knew that she, she, I had talked to her before, so I knew that she was going to be shooting to try and do something special when she turned 70. And she was. She passed me early. The other woman and I were kind of uh, wrestling with each other on the bike. And um, she passed both of us. Then I caught her again on the bike uh, closer to the end. But she passed me again. So she was ahead of me, but not a terrible amount. We got into transition. I came in exactly with the other woman. She and I came in together and I dropped her early on in mile one of the run. So then I thought, okay, now go get Natalie. And like I said, I normally passed her by mile six. And this time I didn't. And I never saw her, even though there was a point where there's a turnaround. So you should, should be able to see each other. And somehow I missed her. I had a lot of friends out on the course, you know, watching. And people were all giving me uh, times. They were saying, she's two minutes ahead. She's four minutes ahead. She's three minutes ahead. And it wasn't that our paces were changing. It was just that people weren't accurate with their times. <laughs> but what everyone said consistently, the same thing, is they would say, she's two minutes ahead, but she doesn't look good. And then the next person would say, she's four minutes ahead, but she doesn't look good. And so I finally stopped listening to that because I thought, I don't care if she doesn't look good. She's staying ahead of me. She must feel good, you know. So we got out to the energy lab, which if you don't know this, this course, you go down in, into this. By the time I got there, it was pitch black. And you go down a two-mile kind of a slight hill and then you turn around and come back up. And so as I went into that... I, it was very dark and out there on that course, you can't see anybody at that point. And so Lee, my husband mentioned to me as I went down, he said, she's two minutes ahead of you. So when I got down to the energy lab, down to the bottom, I still hadn't seen her. I turned around and I saw a woman that I thought might be Natalie. So I got my best form together and I passed her and I thought, okay, great. That's it. I've got her. Now it's just hold this pace, get home. Well, when I got to the top of the energy lab to turn out to the highway, which gives you six more miles to get home, my husband was still there. And he said, she's two minutes ahead of you. And I said, 
I thought I passed her. And he said, nope. So I put it into another gear and went looking for her. And um, so I am 1.3 miles from the finish. And I have not seen or passed Natalie. And I should have been pretty concerned. But as I'm running up, the last thing you do is at 1.3 miles, you're, you're just finishing an uphill. And then you get to the top of what's called Polani Hill. And then you go down a big hill and then you run a mile to the finish line. So it's 1.2 miles home from there. And just as I'm starting to go up the last part of the hill, I hear a friend on the side of the road, can't even see her because it's so dark, but I hear her say, Cherie, she's right up there. And I looked up and I saw a figure, I would not have recognized Natalie, but I saw a figure just starting to go under a light at the top of the hill. And I just cranked it into another gear and went flying up the hill, passed her right at the top of the hill, went flying to the bottom of the hill. Now, my husband is now at the bottom of the hill, and he's wondering how he's going to console me because he figures, oh, God, she's going to think she's got a race again next year. She's going to be so unhappy with this race. And he saw me coming down the hill first and just went crazy. And I hardly gave him the time of day because I still had to get to the finish line. And I just kept running as fast as I could because I had no idea if she was going to be able to kick it in or not. And I made it to the finish line. And she, having broke the record that I had set the year before, which was very good. And um, I waited for her there. And then three and a half minutes later, she came in. And that to me was a very, very gratifying race, not just because I won, but because I had a lot of reason out there to let myself go negative. I had a lot riding on that race, more than I had riding on most of my other races. And I held it together. I never panicked. I stayed calm. And so I think that that's what allowed me when I needed to sprint or what the version of sprinting you do at that point, I was able to do it because I had stayed calm. Whereas if I'd have been panicked and trying to push myself, being concerned, uh, I don't think I could have. So I was, I was really thrilled with that race. And uh, it should not go without saying Natalie was delightful. She, she was the best sport I have ever seen because she had every reason to believe that that was going to be her first Ironman win. And she handled the disappointment incredibly well. She was a real genuine, nice lady. And so that's how I ended my Ironman career. That was the race that I could walk away. And I have been nothing but happy since. Our next clip comes from the sole rower that we have featured on the show. Her name is Allison Hunt. Allison's story is in episode 12, which debuted on August 23rd. And in the episode, Allison earned the distinction of being the first and only athlete who came on the Seasoned Athlete podcast and tackled the topic of menopause. In this clip, Allison talks about how she was able to stay competitive at a high level while going through menopause herself. Right as I was turning 50, I, I had normally weighed around 143 to 145 my adult life. All of a sudden, I started hitting about 150, 153, 155 um, weight-wise. And then I also started not sleeping. So in about a year and a half of sleeping, literally not more than about two hours at a time and gaining weight, um, and figured out, wow, what is going on with me? And then I had kind of weird stomach issues and I thought, man, I'm only 50, 51, I'm falling apart. 
figured out it was menopause. Um, many women don't talk about that, but it is a true physiological change in the female body. Um, I, I went, found a great naturopathic doctor, um, did some hormone testing and figured out, oh yeah, this is menopause, made some shifts in the way I was eating. Um, cause I figured out I'd have a few food intolerances with her. And then I did eventually go on bio identical hormones because hot flashes, all the side effects were so awful. Um, I'm doing it in a very safe way, but I feel so much better. Um, about a year and a half ago, um, that weight that I had put on, I actually lost about 20 pounds just by getting my eating taken care of. I got down to about 137 pounds, feeling amazing. Um, last year when I was invited to race with Chinook Performance Racing, I had the opportunity last year to row as a lightweight rower. And so I decided to go for that. Um, and through eating for performance and being very careful how I did it, um, I went to Masters Nationals last year, weighing 128 pounds and rowed as a lightweight and won three gold medals with amazing women in boats. So menopause turned it around. Um, you, you can turn it around. Um, it's not over yet, but there are ways that you can get better and get healthy. But that was a really hard time figuring that out. One of my earliest interviews on the show was with triathlete turned Spartan racer, Heather Golnick. In recent years, Heather has really made a name for herself in obstacle racing, landing on countless Spartan Race Masters podiums, earning a spot on the 2017 Spartan Race Pro Team, and appearing on the Spartan Ultimate Team Challenge on NBC this past summer. In episode two, debuting on June 7th of this year, Heather talks about her strategies for balancing marriage, being a mom of teens, and her life as a high-level competitor, a must-listen for athlete moms. Check it out. So I definitely think time management is huge. Um, like when my kids were younger and I knew that I had a busy training week and they had band concerts and this and that activity, you know, it was like Sunday afternoon, I would cook, you know, stuff for the next five days, you know, we'd make chicken and we'd have it for three different meals and we'd, you know, just get organized. So organization's a huge part of it. If you're married, communication is a big part of it, like sharing your schedules and who's doing what and who's taking what kid where, when, and uh, just trying to stay organized so there's no rushing around in the morning or there's no forgetting lunches because that's what always causes the turmoil is all of a sudden you have those bumps in the day that you didn't expect. Not to say that those would not happen anyway. Like a kid gets sick and you're like, okay, I was the one that was had the flexible schedule. So, okay, I was supposed to do a three hour bike ride today. Okay. I'm going to skip it. And learning that that's okay. And, and knowing that there's a bigger purpose and a bigger picture and not to stress about, you know, a missed workout because your kid's sick. I think when people start getting competitive, sometimes that gets to be hard because, you know, I am the prize, I am the prize and not realizing like it, it's really okay if you today. <laughs> Staying on the topic of amazing athlete moms, we're going to go to a clip from speed skater Melissa Koenig. It's not often that a mom gets to play the same sport as her child at the same time and do so at a highly competitive level. In episode nine, which debuted on July 26th, Melissa talks about what it's like to train and compete with her speed skater son. You know, it's really special for sure. Um, and I think we have a relationship that's um, pretty unique in terms of, we just spend a lot of time together. 
Um, it's a little bit of a delicate balance as they start to be teenagers um, where they don't always want their mom hanging around. And, you know, and plus I know all of his friends, right? And I'm like really good friends with all of the girls that I compete with that are his age that are his teammates as well because we skate in the same group. Um, so that's kind of weird, I think, sometimes. Um, but it's been a really cool experience. And one of the things I think that's really interesting about it is that there's a bit of role reversal that happens. Certainly when he was younger, it was more of a traditional sort of thing, although he was definitely more accomplished as a speed skater than I was when I started. So there's this thing that happens where this kid starts to become the, not the parent, but like the one that knows more. And so like he often will, he's, he's a really good coach and often he will coach me on things and uh, give me feedback and advice. And so it's kind of a cool relationship. It's a very different dynamic than if it was just a, a parent kid relationship. You know, I mean, it's definitely the parent kid stuff that's in there, but that having that sort of, hey, I've got this advice I can give you, try this and see if it works kind of a thing. It, it creates more of a level playing field, I think, and more of sort of a peer relationship, which is really cool. And it's been super cool to sort of watch him, you know, grow as a person in the sport and, and to see what sport has given him and to know that, you know, it's stuff that I, that I got out of sport as well, but just to sort of witness it firsthand and to, to be such an active participant in it, it's been pretty cool. We've had a lot of great stories from athlete moms on the show. One that really stood out to me is from roller derby skater Haley Daly. As a retired roller derby skater myself, I full well know the commitment required to compete in that sport. And I also remember those days when I just didn't feel like going to practice and had to either convince myself to go or allow myself to skip it. In episode 19, airing on October 11th, Haley explains what has been the key to her longevity in such a time-demanding sport and how her kids keep her honest and committed even on the tougher days. You know, for me, uh, it is changing more so now in the last year or two. My my boys are older. They're 11, like I said, 11 and, and 15 now. And when I started, I was around 34. Uh, so in, at that time of my life, in my mind, you know, I'm not getting much sleep. I had a young child teaching to potty train, you know, working. And, and so the schedule of being away at night was, was a good fit for practice. And then now with time as they're, they're growing and, you know, they are, they have sports now, you know, they, they have after school activities and weekend games and, and definitely the focus is shifting to accommodate their schedule um, over this last uh, year, I've noticed that, um, you know, I've had to shift my responsibilities and my focus around what, what's needed for them. And, and so I would say up until this point, it was easier in my in my work life and family life to fit Derby in. Um, I'm having to kind of reevaluate uh, my focus in this last year. Um, but when I look back, I'm like, man, geez, Brock was two and a half years old and Jay was six. And now I have these young preteens. They don't know any different. And I, so, so I think to answer the question, what kept me in also so long is sanity, uh, which uh, having a community to break out with and just leave the house and, and just go exercise and be part of a group and clear my mind and 
and just come back home feeling accomplished, um, you know, setting those little goals before practice. Um, but also for my boys to see me be dedicated. So the same lessons that I try to instill in them as they join teams, you know, you don't start a season if you're not going to finish it, for example, or, um, you know, if you made a commitment to attend practice, you have to go. So obviously like everybody else, there would be nights I'd come home from work and I just was so tired. I, I there just, I wasn't going to be able to make practice. And because I had been accountable uh, in my family, we have a calendar on the fridge and it has everybody's activities blocked out. And for me to have maintained my time in this sport at a competitive level, it takes a lot of pre-planning. Nothing is done at the last minute. Um, and also having boundaries and focus on, you know, practice schedules, knowing I, ha- I would have to travel or be away. Uh, I definitely sacrificed uh other activities or other events uh, to make sure that I can maintain my commitment. But in the big picture, it's the same lessons or expectation that I'm trying to instill in my boys that I think is why I've, I've hung on as long as I have. You know, I've had peaks and, and valleys of love for the sport um, from a physical standpoint and a mental standpoint um, but again, once that commitment was made for the season, it, di- it really didn't matter. I, I was in it for the long haul. And then, you know, you get through that rough patch of, of just not having the passion maybe for a few weeks or, you know, work is tough and, and it just made it that much easier. So a lot of it has to do with, with my, my boys and that commitment of, of trying to show them what that's like to be part of a team or a bigger picture than just myself. And what a great lesson that is. And it's by doing it yourself, that's the best way you can show them. You know, you could tell them all day long that it's important to keep your commitments and start what you finish, but by showing it to them and living that life, there's no better way to instill that in them. Yeah. And there, you know, there would be the classic come home from work and, uh, you know, you have practice tonight, mom. Yeah, I'm not going to go. Mom, you have to go. You're not going to make eligibility. You know, they, they keep you honest. Oh yeah. In the household, they, they would know, uh, well, all that work and then you're not going to be eligible mom for the game. You know, how could you miss that game? You're going to let your team down, you know, so it was totally that reverse interaction and, and it was good. It, you know, I was accountable to just more than myself. So it was, it's, it's a good, it's a good thing. So you learned a little bit from them as well. I absolutely every day. From here, I want to move on to perhaps the most powerful story told on this show to date. Episode five, which debuted on June 27th, featured CrossFit Games Masters athlete, Diane Stewart. Diane is a retired police chief turned CrossFit athlete and coach. In 2015, Diane was excited to be attending the CrossFit Games as a competitor, but a devastating tragedy changed everything for her. In this clip, Diane talks candidly about this tragedy and how she was able to come back from it with a higher purpose. So there I was at the 2015 CrossFit Games, um, competed day one, woke up day two, ate breakfast, got dressed in my uniform. My captains were running running the shop here at, at Hayward. They were watching over things for me. Um, the deal was I was off the grid, you know, no phone calls, no email, turned everything off. Uh, they were handling everything. Um, so we were getting ready to walk out the door and I turned my telephone on as I do every morning just to, you know, see what's cooking. As one does. Yes. Um, and I knew things weren't okay because when I turned my phone on, it literally was vibrating off the table. There were uh, 25 voicemails. Uh, there were probably 50 or 60 text messages. 
And so I listened just to the first voice message and it was my captain who was running the department and uh, he was pretty distraught. And he told me that uh, one of my sergeants had been shot and um, that I needed to call him immediately. And so I knew that I didn't need to listen to any other messages that I needed to call him. And, and we were literally just getting ready to walk out the door. And so uh, I called him and he told me that, uh, that Sergeant Scott Lunger had been shot in the head and had died. And, you know, it's funny. It's, it's, it's not funny, funny, not funny. You know, I still get tore up talking about it. Um, so we jumped in the car and uh, my husband drove me down to the games and I checked in with the director and explained that I would, I needed to withdraw from the games and my city manager who was just, she was amazing. She, uh, she worked with me. Uh, I couldn't get a flight out of LA. I was in gridlock traffic. Oh, I mean, it's six 30 in the morning in downtown LA on a Wednesday morning. And, uh, it took us about, Oh, I don't know, close to two hours to get to the airport. And she had a, a jet from our Hayward executive airport flown down to pick me up. I was in my, competition shorts and tank top. I got on a jet. My husband went back to the hotel room and packed everything up. And uh, I, I had an hour flight to just to put my head on straight because I knew it was going to be a pretty tough week. And she picked me up and I was in uniform doing a press conference 30 minutes later. And it wasn't disappointing. I don't want people to think that I was disappointed about not competing. I mean, you know, to a degree, of course, that's true. What was disappointing was the heartbreak uh, for my organization, for my community, for Scott Lunger's daughters and his wife, you know, for his for his family, for his loved ones. And, you know, just trying to, you're trying to make sense of it in your head. I mean, how, how could this happen? And um, yeah, so I would say that that's the most devastating and disappointing time in my athletic career. But the, the takeaway that I, that I'd like to share with the listeners is it really put things in perspective, Robin. Yeah. Life is so fragile and we all get caught up in, you know, I talked about it, life standing still for five weeks during the open. It's just, it's just sports. It's not, it's not real life. My, Ability to pay my bills doesn't matter on how I do in the CrossFit Open. No. But my life was forever changed and the, my perspective changed dramatically on what's important in life. And what was important was to be present, engaged and supportive of my organization, of the family, of the community. I mean, it was it was a really tough time and it wasn't just a tough time until we buried him. It was a tough year as we went through all the miscellaneous anniversary dates. And I was really grateful that I was so physically and mentally fit because I think that's what helped me survive um, that first eight days until we were able to uh, bury Scott with honors. And then, um, and then to really decide whether, you know, what I wanted to do. And you thought you thought I was charged up after not being able to do ring muscle ups in fourteen mm-hmm. and charge up for fifteen. When Scott was killed in two thousand fifteen, I said I am going to go back to the games in two thousand sixteen, and I'm going to be on that podium. And people laughed at me. They're like, "You didn't even finish competing." I'm like, "I'm not doing it for me. This is a promise between me and God, and I'm doing it because I want to honor Scott, and that's my way of honoring Scott." And I. 
I never lost that perspective the whole time. And how did that fuel your journey as you headed it in 2016, which we know now? (laughs) (laughs) I I spoiled it a little bit at the beginning, but let's talk about that fire that you were feeling as you went to the games in 2016 or headed towards the games. It wasn't easy working 60, 70 hours a week and training. And so my life consisted of, you know, going to work, working diligently to to get off at a decent hour, come home, uh, be back on the road within five minutes, and then go train for three and a half hours. That's what I did five nights a week. And on the weekends, I trained much longer um, in between community events, speaking engagements, you know, stuff going on at work. And whenever I felt sorry for myself, we all have a tendency in the middle of, you know, a pain cave moment in the workout, I would think about how lucky I was to feel what I was feeling and that Scott could never feel that again. And so it was my fuel. You know, it was my, it fired me up every time. Every time I would start to go, oh my gosh, I can't do another rep or I can't do, oh yes, you can. Yes, you can. And you get, you, you're privileged enough that you get to do it. And so that fueled me through the whole season. And when I got to the games, I didn't really think about it until really hard until day two. We had to do this. uh, It was a berm run burpee, five rounds per time. And I'm running up the stadium stairs. I'm like on lap three running up a hill. And I wanted to all a lot of people were starting to walk, you know, up the stairs or up that. And I said, there is no way you're walking. You are going to honor this man and you're going to put everything you have into it. It was I think it was my worst finish. I think I finished 12th. But I never stopped and I gave it everything that I had. And I I literally thought about Scott every step for the next three rounds. Every step I took, every breath I took, I thought about him. And, uh, and then when I got to the finals, they had an incredibly difficult workout. And I, I, I was getting into the first round and I was finishing the last movement. I, had, I, was, I was in first place. I was in first place in that workout I had done my chest bars. I had done my deadlifts. We were using this axle bar with 125 pounds on it. It was incredibly heavy with a a short stubby axle bar. And we had to do hang power cleans. And I, it's a big fat bar, Robin. I couldn't pick the bar up. People started rolling past me inside. I'm crying. I'm crying. I'm like, I can't figure this out. I can't figure out how to get a grip to get this up onto my shoulders. And, um, I walked over to the chalk bucket and I, and I, I, I said a prayer and I said, please don't let this all have been for nothing. Please let me come through for Scott. And I went back to that barbell and darn if I didn't figure out how to get that damn thing up and managed to hang on and made it to the podium. And I'll tell you, it was, I often question, you know, how do I know if I'm doing this sport for the right reason? You know, am I doing it for self-glory? Am I doing it for self-gratification or am I tr- truly doing it for the right reasons, for the glory of God and Last year was all about Scott. And I will tell you, I can remember that moment on that podium like nothing else. Here you go, buddy. Here you go, brother. Now this one's for you. By the way, Diane also competed in the 2017 CrossFit Games and took third place in her age group. I had so much fun watching her compete in the online live feed as well. So we have just one more clip to round out our season athlete best moments of 2017 episode. And quite frankly, I'd be remiss if I didn't include a clip from women's running pioneer, Catherine Switzer. I was thrilled to be able to spend some time talking to a woman who's considered to be a living legend in the running community. For those who don't know her story, Catherine was the first woman to officially run the Boston Marathon. But it was not without controversy as an infuriated race official attempted to physically push her off the course. 
That didn't stop her, though, as Catherine went on to become a leader in creating opportunities for women in sport through her 261 Fearless Foundation. In this story from episode 21, which debuted on November 2nd, Catherine talks about how her life changed after that historic Boston Marathon race, allowing her to lead the way in busting myths and misconceptions about women in sport around the world. At the end of the race, I was a different person. Certainly, it was an event that changed my life. Um, I didn't know it was going to change it as dramatically as it did, um, because as the years unfolded, um, you know, I was not I was not really a popular person with a, with with huge numbers of people and and athletic establishments for a long time because I was perceived as a upstart, a barrier breaker, a, you know, busybody, la 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 la. Um, and I said, look, women would run if they only had the opportunities. And so I turned my attention after having some success as an athlete myself. I turned my attention to creating those opportunities, and that's what made all the difference in the world because. We um, we worked very, very hard, got women official in Boston. I helped create the first ever women's road race and then helped lead the drive to get the women's marathon into the Olympic Games in 1984. And it was it was during all of this time, of course, I was still running, not as an active competitor necessarily, um, but certainly as somebody who believed in running. And um, then over the years to come back to running uh, pretty seriously this last couple of years in particular, and run Boston again this year on my 50th anniversary was as different as night and day. Because, you know, here I was now a part of those 58% of all the women in the U.S. runners. I was there in gratitude for my health. I was there as a gesture of passing the torch forward, of look at what we had all done in the last 50 years, imagine what the next 50 years is going to look like. Um, and, and the welcome at Boston this year uh, was unbelievable. I mean, there were hundreds and hundreds of people along the route who didn't even know me, who had signs supporting me, signs for 261 Fearless, um, the the foundation that, of course, was named after the bib number that the official tried to pull off of me. 125 people ran in Boston in honor of that bib and raised money for the foundation that is uh, going around the world now empowering women. Just as we said at the beginning of this conversation, around the world, most women have no opportunities. And if we can show them how they can put one foot in front of the other in this cheap, accessible means, um, they too can become empowered, like we feel. And that is our, our objective. We changed the world several times already with running, and we're going to do it big time now around the world. And I'm excited about it. It's, it's exciting. It's, it's just so astounding to me how much change has happened in 50 years. I, I was reading your book and just... It, it blew my mind that that men thought that women couldn't run because their uterus might fall out or, you know, or just it's too much exertion and they they might die. Like that's the thinking. And it was just 50 years ago. I know. But, you know, women themselves were their own worst enemies because women believe those myths, too. And those myths, by the way, are very, very strong in many countries. I mean, I'm sure you have read where Saudi Arabia finally is letting women drive. After all this time, this massive campaign, and they're only doing it to create a better image for Saudi Arabia, and they're only letting them drive next year as starters because it's going to take this whole year for, as they say, the, the male population to adjust to this, this huge social leap forward. But one, one cleric said, we shouldn't let women drive in Saudi Arabia because it'll hurt their ovaries. <laughs> so you see how, yeah. the, how prevalent that myth is? 
that if they do anything that is out of the norm, somehow their whole biological system is going to be screwed up. It is so preposterous. And yet, you know, of course, a woman 50 years ago, if she's told you shouldn't run because you're going to get big legs or you're going to grow hair on your chest or you're going to turn into a guy and never have children, they're not going to take the risk. You see what I mean? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's far too terrifying at that time. Yeah. Besides, sweating is icky. And look at those women. They look so, you know, like they're, they're suffering. Oh, God. That's not the feminine image I want. That is not becoming of a woman. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which is so sad because, of course, what what you and I also know is that running itself is, is almost gender free. You know, we're out there as runners. We're not out there as men and women, especially. Yeah. We're not regarding each other sexually or violently. We're out there supporting each other, uh, uh, taking joy in our accomplishment and our shared accomplishment. So if you've listened to the show with any sort of regularity, you likely know that before the end of all of my athlete interviews, I ask them the very same question. Do you have one parting piece of wisdom that you've learned on your competitive journey that you'd like to share with our listeners today? And the athletes that have been featured on the show have all shared some amazingly inspirational wisdom. So to wrap up my first annual year-end best of episode, I'd like to do a roundup of some of the best pieces of parting wisdom shared over the course of the year. So here it is, our parting wisdom quickfire, starting with marathon swimmer Pat Gallant-Charette. I would say no matter what a person's age is, to go out and try something new and to not to think that, oh, because you're 40 or 50 that you can't do something because, you know, you just never know what is possible. And and the thing is to, to give it a try. Because I'll tell you, when I was 46, I just never, ever imagined that at the age of 66 that I would have been swimming, you know, 20, 30 miles. So I would say go and try something new and enjoy. And, um, you know, life's too short to be sitting on the couch <laughs> watching TV. Here's Marathon Goddess. Julie Weiss. This is a quote, one of my favorites by C.S. Lewis, is that you are never too old to set a new goal or dream a new dream. Now, if I, at age 37, who is overweight and on antidepressants, can do something like what I've done, anything is possible. Here's a parting piece of wisdom from triathlete Laura Safaya. Just believe in yourself and your talent and your ability in whatever that is and to persevere and have courage. Sometimes it's courage to just get out the door. And if you can do that, you win. Here's some great wisdom from American Ninja Warrior Selena Laniel. You never fail when you compete. There's no failure in competition. There's learning experiences and just growing and just, I'm not sure how to explain it. There's just no failure. You know, everything's a positive. You get out there and you put yourself out there and uh, you enjoy what you're doing. You're going to influence somebody in some way. You're going to touch somebody's life. You're going to touch your own life. You're doing something positive out there. So never see anything as a failure when you're out there competing. Up next, some parting wisdom from National Senior Games athlete, Margaret Alawaye. I think that um, passion for something comes first. Like as I said before, you just have to have the desire and never think that you cannot do anything. If you, you know, say, say for instance, you know you, you cannot be an archer, then you, as I said before, Walk around the block. You can become you can become an expert walker, you know, and it doesn't call for any equipment 
or anything. What it requires is your personal desire. And finally, we go back to running pioneer Catherine Switzer to put the cherry on top of this parting wisdom quickfire. You're never too old. You're never too fat. You're never too slow. You're never too inexperienced to become an athlete. And with that, we call it a wrap on the seasoned athlete best moments of 2017 and an amazing first year for the show. I just want to take a moment to thank every single athlete who said yes to being a part of the Season Athlete Podcast this year. This show didn't exist before June of this year, which meant that the people who agreed to be interviewed early on, they had to put their trust in an unknown podcast and me as an unknown host. But I think a big part of what makes an athlete is a level of fearlessness. And that's what these athletes demonstrated by allowing themselves to be interviewed for this unknown podcast. But their amazing stories are also what made Season Athlete what it is today. So I just want to give big thanks to all of the athletes who have been on the show this year, from the main interview guests to the everyday Season Athletes. You are all an incredible inspiration to me and to the listeners. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And speaking of listeners, I also want to show my extreme gratitude to you, the listeners who gave this show a chance this year and hopefully drew your own inspiration from it. I keep saying this, and I'll probably always say this, but I think I will be forever surprised anytime I hear about someone I didn't already know who listens to this show. Sometimes I just assume it's my friends and family only, but I keep meeting people that I'm not related to and and I wasn't already friends with who listen to the show, and it just is so thrilling to me. Uh, This show has been my baby this year. It's been my biggest project of the year, and I'm just so happy that it's having an impact in some small way or maybe a big way. I don't know. Who knows? I've always said that my goal through the show is to encourage people to believe in and explore their own athletic potential regardless of age. And from what I'm hearing, that's happening. And I couldn't be more grateful and happy for it. So to my listeners, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're awesome. So all of my love and all of my gratitude to all of you for making this a really special and amazing year for the Seasoned Athlete Podcast. I can't wait to bring you more inspiring and motivating stories and maybe even find new ways to help you find your athletic side at any age in 2018. Until then, my fellow season athletes, have yourselves a wonderfully happy new year. Thank you for listening to the Season Athlete Podcast. The music you heard on this episode is from bensound.com. Be sure to follow us on social, Season Athlete Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And hey, do you know of someone who would be a great guest on this show? Shoot us an email, seasonedathlete at gmail.com and tell us all about them. Or if it's you, tell us all about yourself. As we head into 2018, I hope that you will push your boundaries, find adventure, and always, always, always embrace your extraordinary. <laughs>